Hello. Hello, it's Alex here and Kiki. On this episode, we're heading to the southwest, Cornwall to be precise. Jethro Compton and Darren Clark join us to talk about the curious case of Benjamin Button. They tell us about adapting a short story into a two-act actor-musician epic and the tenacious journey of the show so far. Welcome to Making, Making a, a Musical: The, the Future of, of British, British Musical, musical Theatre. So, the show we're talking about today. I think I was first made aware of a few years ago. It was playing at Southwark Playhouse and everybody I knew seemed to have a ticket and I didn't have a ticket and I didn't manage to see it. And then earlier this year, it was back at Southwark Playhouse at their new space and I got a ticket and I watched it and I could have sat there for hours and hours and hours and uh, just enjoyed all of the music, all of the staging, such a beautiful experience. Um, And that show is The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Today we have Jethro Compton, who's written book and lyrics, and Darren Clark, who's written music and lyrics. Hello Mm. both and welcome. Hello, thank thank you for having us. Thanks for coming along. Um, I devastatingly saw neither production, so (laughs) I'm going to live vicariously through this conversation as if I had. Great. So I can't wait. Right, so as Alex mentioned, you've done two productions already, but let's take it back to the start. I think it started with you, Jathro. Yeah, um, it started sort of 2016. I knew I wanted to make a musical. I, I I've always loved musicals, but had always been kind of terrified of making one and didn't know how to make one. And then gradually um, had been doing a lot more plays with songs and the amount of music and the amount of songs was sort of increasing. And I thought a good setting for a musical would be a Cornish Harbour side. And I sort of had a picture of sort of the world of it and the sort of storytelling vocabulary. And I knew I'd want it to be acting musician because I'd done some of that in the play work that I've been doing. And um, yeah, and then... I think it was the 6th of January, 2017. I ordered a copy of the book, the short story, because basically very I found specific out. specific date. Well, I like to be specific. <laughs> um, and yeah, ordered a copy of the short story, gave it a read and thought actually that would fit perfectly, even though it's an American story into that world. And yeah, that was sort of the beginning of the journey, really. So what was the next step? You knew you were going to write the show and maybe you had like a a, a rough idea of what that plot or, or first draft was going to look like. Uh, what was the next step that you took to literally make the musical? So I wrote the first part of it, um, pretty much just the book with a few rough sort of lyrics in there as well and was working um, with a composer who I'd worked with um, for some of the songs in the, the plays that I've been doing. And... Um, then I managed to get a grant from Arts Council and got a group of actor musicians and myself and um, assistant and, uh, in theory, this composer in a barn in Cornwall for with some support from Hall for Cornwall as well um, for, for a fortnight to sort of work on what it was, basically. Um, but unfortunately, things with that composer didn't really work out. He, he didn't show up. He turned out to be a theoretical composer. <laughs> a theoretical composer. <laughs> ah. uh, yeah, um, yeah he, he did eventually sort of show up a little bit and then uh, had to leave again. And then I never heard from him ever again. Uh, <laughs> Lucky for me. Yeah. <laughs> he so, walks dead. Yeah. So, I'll Darren, tell us, how did you become involved? I became involved um, as a practical composer um, about what well, was about halfway through 2018. A mutual friend of ours, Daniel Torrento, producer, um, had seen a workshop that I'd done here at the other palace, actually, the of the the Wicker Husband, a concert version of the Wicker Husband, um, which was the Styles and Drew um, MTI uh, 
mentorship award winner in 2016. Humble brag. Humble brag. Humble <laughs> brag. Just leave that there. Just give him a mental, mental in fact, that wasn't even a humble brag. That was just a brag. No, no. <laughs> Ants, Ants and George, proud parents. Thanks, guys. Um, no, uh, so we, yeah, we did that. Daniel was in the audience um, and it, it's very much a sort of a folk musical theatre piece. Um, and Jethro had obviously had, had this person drop out this, and uh, but had already booked a venue for the show. Yeah. Um, yeah. In early, well, sort of mid-early 2019, it was booked for, wasn't it? Mm, booked for the spring, yeah. Which was the first Southwark Playhouse run. Mm. Which was the first run. And so um, uh, he got, he reached out to all of his producer. I didn't. I, I emailed Just Danielle, Just Danielle. and okay. said, I need, a, I need a composer, musical theatre composer with an interest in folk music. Yeah. She came back with one name. Darren yeah. Clark, that's your guy. So yeah. I sent you an email. Mm-hmm. We met up. We had met a up. coffee. Cafe Koha. My favorite place. Yeah. Still your little office. It's my little office. office. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we did a little sort of a test run. He gave me a lyric. Um, and I went away and I messed with it. And I did a lot of things to it um, that I probably wouldn't have done ordinarily just to see if he could take it or not. Because I'd had, <laughs> had bad experiences in the past where collaborators wouldn't take on ideas and we're very rigid and I don't like working like that and mm. I just don't do that anymore it's not worth anyone's time mm. and the re- the product is always rubbish um so I just wanted to see if Jethro was working like happy working like that and he very much was like you know it was it was great like you know very um engaging and very uh you know wanting to to tell the story principally as you know there wasn't any ego that's the thing, certainly with Jethro, there is no ego. There is just a, a desire to tell a story, which is what as, is a dream mm. as a composer and lyricist to work with someone like that. So, yeah, that's how I got him. That's the nicest thing you've ever said about me. It is, and I'll never say it again. No. So. <laughs> so you start working together. <laughs> how does that work practically? Because I think, Jethro, you were living in Vienna at the time. Yeah, so. well, yeah sort of mostly in Vienna. Um, and so that, and we, to that point, you know, that was August 2018, we went into rehearsals April of 2019. So we had about eight months of writing time to get the show. And at that point, there was still only part one of the adaptation. Yes. Um, there was no act two. There was no <laughs> There was no second part. So what I'm hearing is no pressure in eight months. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, and so we did a little bit of... Um, you came out to Vienna because I was directing a lot. And basically, because I self-financed that initial production... I needed to take on a lot of international work mm. and mostly in Vienna to be able to pay for it. So I was doing a load of productions right up to um, the show, you know, going into mm. rehearsals and button, and then had a load of productions directly afterwards, which I was trying to write at the same time. <laughs> um, so you were coming over to Vienna for sort of weekends yeah, um, while I was, yeah, while I was like rehearsing, you would yeah. come over for a weekend of work in the middle of my rehearsals. Yeah. And then once I wasn't rehearsing, I was coming and staying with some friends in London yeah. and taking the bus over to, to your place every morning yeah. and sitting on the floor because you didn't, you were moving out. So all your furniture had gone. <laughs> so we literally would sit on the floor. <laughs> sit on the floor. And or write. at the pub. We went to the, we went um, to the pub the a lot. Pub and we, we'd write in the pub, which is Good nice. inspiration. Yeah, it's a lovely place and, to write. And yeah. And it was the first, I think it was the first or the second weekend that you came out to Vienna that at that point I was going to be just doing the lyrics. Mm. Um, And it was, I think, the first or second visit you came out where we worked on Moon in the Sea. And at the end of the day, we went to 
the pub as a running theme. <laughs> and um, it's not a pub in Vienna. It's like just a bar. A Kneipe would be the German word for it. There you go. Enjoy that little free German mm, lesson. There we go. Um, so we went there and I said, it felt kind of like we wrote that together lyrically rather than me writing it and you setting it to music. And you went, yeah. And I went, should we do the lyrics together then? And you went, okay. Yeah. And that was that. That was the end of that conversation. Yeah. Um, and then by the end of that year, I, I think I sent, I, if I know it was the 31st of December 2018 mm. that I sent you part two. Ah, yes. Cause <laughs> I was in New think, Zealand. You were in New Zealand. Yes. I was in Cornwall in, in, in my parents' attic. Yes. Um, right. Locked away, wrapped up in, in a giant winter onesie, like yeah. a Christmas onesie. It was so cold. And I wrote part, the second part of it and sent that over to you. Yes. Which when you think, looking back on it, that the fact that the entire second part of the show was in its first draft at the end of December when we went into rehearsals in April is yeah. insane. Mad, man, madness. And I remember when I was back in New Zealand, that's where I'm from, um, and I was uh, at my mum's mum's house and she has an old piano there, which which we got when I was about 22. Um, and that's where I wrote the theme, the two of the main themes, uh, home and time, which would ended up for both of us being what the show was about moment time mm. um and so yeah if you hadn't sent that like to me while i was at home they might have been very different songs because i think mm. i write differently when i sit at a real piano and i don't have one because i started teaching myself the piano when i was about 18 or 19 um and after sort of a couple of summers of renting like an electric, electric piano mum was like oh, okay darren seems to be interested in doing this like let's get together and, and get like it was a very very old secondhand piano it's probably mm. about two hundred dollars um and um yeah and i just i just love writing at a real piano it's just uh, there's something special about it so you're adapting um this story and what i didn't realize before i saw the show is that actually it's a short story it's f scott fitzgerald's short story but but the show is not a short story um <laughs> how did you make that decision and, and how did you go about beginning to expand into something which well it actually spans the world the story hmm. I, I love adapting short stories in a way more than novels for stage because with the short story, it's incomplete, essentially. You know, there, there's an idea, a concept, there's some character and some, some themes, but it's, but it's not fully formed. Um, and particularly with that short story, I think it's quite flawed in many ways. Um, it, and so, so actually sort of using that as an inspiration, but essentially writing an original story in an original piece but taking that inspiration mm. is for me the perfect sort of world of adaptation um because it means i can tell the story i want to tell rather than if you're adapting a novel you often have to tell that the story is there so you have to tell that story whereas because there there was so little story and what was there is quite bleak um and depressing and unpleasant <laughs> um it meant actually cool i take that idea and use that idea, but tell the story I want to tell. And it's similar to with the, the music as well, music and the, the, the songs, um, because it, it gives you this picture, but then it doesn't tell you what like a character is thinking or feeling or hoping for. Um, you get to create that. And so there is room for the songs to actually do something. Mm. And also you're not sort of beholden to recreating certain moments that an audience might love from the book mm. you know there's there's the book oh and there's that wonderful scene in the book but they didn't put it in the musical because there wasn't time 
that we don't have that problem because actually very, very few people have read this, the short story of The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, mm. but a lot of people know the concept, mm. which was a very, very astute um, pickup when Jethro began to adapt it, I think. So as you're writing then, obviously, we've had conversations with a few people who've come to the podcast who have been adapting uh, work. How much did you then refer to the source material as as you were writing? Or was it you just you bought the book, you read the book, and then you put it to the side and you carried on? More the latter, yeah. Mm. Um, I did go back every now and then and read it. And, and there's a there's a couple of moments of dialogue that have made it in not... Yeah, not quite word for word, but but pretty much um, I read it, put it aside. And a lot of the time I'd go back to it if I needed a name for a character. Mm. Um, and so there's a lot of sort of Easter eggs of things that if you read the short story, some of those have fallen out along the way. But, you know, there was a ship named after in, in the first draft in 2019. Those were the first um, production. There was a ship. Um, that he boarded, which was named after the love interest in the short story. Hildegard. Hildegard. Hildegard Moncrief. And so mm. we have Miss Moncrief's Tea Rooms is a, is a thing, but the the love interest who in ours is called Alone Keen. Uh, Keen comes from Dr. Keen, who is the doctor that, you know, so the, little, little names and stuff. Mm. But other than that, pretty much I put it aside because also I'm a huge sort of structure nerd. And so actually... You know, I put it aside and then go to my spreadsheets and go, right, what, how do I populate this story with, with plot? Um, <laughs> events. And, and events. what does the spreadsheet look like? It, it looks phenomenal. It. it looks no, phenomenal. You do no, not do. give us the detail. We want to nerd out with you. So it basically, it comes, because I also do a, a fair amount of screenwriting as well. And so it comes from sort of the, I sort of, a lot of the different screenwriting ideas of sort of the rules and sort of science of storytelling um, and then I read a lot of those books and then built that into a spreadsheet. Then every time I'm, and I'm watching movies, I'm sort of constantly working on it. And when I'm writing, I'm constantly working on it. So essentially it's, it's about 150 beats, um, uh, which tell you exactly what, when they should happen and where and what should be happening. The seventh circle of hell. Yeah. <laughs> but, but also like if you're, a, if you're a nerd about it, like then it's, it's the seventh circle of heaven. Broken down into five acts, all yeah. color coded, which then I use that color coding from the spreadsheets through the final draft plan. So it's all then color coded at the top of final draft to, for which act and, and all the different beats and stuff. I'm a bit lonely. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think it's good to have a plan to follow, right? You, you've Makes always it. got somewhere to step forward. Yeah. And you're, you've got Darren. Yeah. And Darren is also a nerd. He, 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 story you know, nerd he, well. he, he acts like I'm the weirdo, but he's also oh, a weirdo. Yeah. I'm a huge story nerd. Like, you know, I've read all the books as well. And I haven't done the spreadsheet, but I don't need to because Jethro's That's done it. That's it. Um, Compliment one another. And it is, there is something I, I, I find about, like, when I'm writing a musical, I like to be, I like to be free to write a thing. And then, and then it's nice to sort of squeeze that freedom in through the, the filter of the spreadsheet and the beats and the things like that to really, really hone down on, on how it, how it's going to be dramatic and how it maintains pace and things like that. Um, because I think you've got to have that freedom to, to go somewhere just in your mind, see where it takes you because mm. you never know, um, if it's going to take you to an interesting beat or a different take on a on a certain beat, the music will do that and, and lyric will do that just because of how it works. Um, but it's extremely useful having the. I think it's also, you know, for me, it's just having that confidence of knowing 
why something's not working when it's not working and be able to look mm. at it and saying we're losing the audience in that moment on a sort of structural scientific level why is that yeah. what is the reason behind that and therefore having going into any rewrites or whatever with the confidence of being able to really analyze it properly yeah. and and not look at it as a mystery yeah i don't like mystery yeah. i don't like unknowns i like yeah. certainty yeah. and so being able to look at it and say that that isn't working because we're not doing that and that and that yeah um and but it doesn't for me it's i think a lot of writers find structure terrifying and restrictive and for me it's it's just the skeleton. It's the, yeah. the, you know, that's the skeleton that means that the, the body is going to hold itself together. The, mm. the rest of it is the flesh and the skin and the hair and all the rest of it. That's the art. That's the fun of it. That's where mm. the freedom comes is, you know, you've got those checkpoints that you need to hit what happens between those points. That's for me where yeah. it's, um, yeah. But knowing that it's not just sort of uncharted territory, it's not yeah. open water. And I think it's also nice to have that, um, to be able to see that structure because if there is a problem here, like, uh, you know, halfway through the story, often the problem won't be there. It will be at the beginning of the story. or the, So, you know, it saves you spending time trying to fix something at this point, which actually needs to be fixed earlier or potentially even later. It's just something you're not, you're not doing later. And with that that layout, you can really see what beats sort of, influence other beats mm. in a in a certain way and how they do so it's it's incredibly useful and we should say one of the big changes um from the short story and as a proud southwesterner myself one which really resonated for me was the setting you touched on it earlier but tell us a bit more about that because i think one of the things that it influences the dialogue it influences the kind of characters hugely um what kind of impact has that has that had on the on the structure and all of those infills I mean, you say it in, in impacts it a lot, but there's also, I don't know, I used to write a lot of Westerns for stage and for screen as well. And actually they work beautifully in a West Country accent as well. You know, <laughs> they do. It's, and, and we had someone come to an audition um, who had got, a, there was a miscommunication and they came in prepped with a sort of Southern deep South American accent and it worked. It worked so well. It was so good. Because what I always used to say so about good. the the Western thing, when people were like, how can you, at that point, I'd never even been to America and I was writing all these Westerns and people were saying, how can you do that? I said, well, it's small town life. It's whether it's small town in the Wild West or small town in the West country, it's small town life. It's the same kind of issues. Um, I think that the fact that it was set in a harbour side in Cornwall, if, you know, if we'd set it in a harbour side in New England, that would probably work equally as well um that connection to the sea and connection to the elements i think is is probably the biggest impact it's had but whether it's american or british um i don't think plays for me a, that much of a yeah. a role in it i might be wrong in that but i don't no, think so. i don't think so i think like because musically speaking those the harbor the sea going world it's almost like certainly in the western world world over is very similar because of course new england is populated by Irishmen and um, Cornishmen and you know all the people who went over there and they brought their music with them, and so the same music exists over there as does as does here. Um, so I, I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't write hugely different music if no. I was in maybe a, a tinge of something something different, but it wouldn't be wouldn't be radically altered. I don't think. Mm. Well, and something that Irishmen Cornishmen have in common is a real love of the Great British Pub. Um, and the first song which we're going to hear is a song which happens in 
said pub uh, on the harbour side. So tell us about when she looked at me. So this um, this is quite an interesting one because it started before Darren was involved. It was I would just mm. call it the, the the drinking song, um, and I'd written all the, these lyrics, which was essentially a story of a guy waiting in the pub, drowning his sorrows um, for you know his love to return, and then um, Darren came in, and I never played him the original demos from it, and so then Darren came up with a completely new sound for it. And then we started rewriting the lyrics. And then 2019, it still continued that story mm. of, it was still that sort of, it was sort of diegetic in the in the world that it told a story that wasn't connected to Benjamin alone, which is something that was a mistake that we've rectified. So in the version that you're now going to hear is from the latest production where it's still telling, it still sort of works diegetically, but um, as sort of a drinking traditional drinking song in the pub but it reflects the story of benjamin alone and what they're going through mm. um and i think it so it works so much better now because whereas before you were in the pub where benjamin and alone meet and then there was sort of it's a five six minute song that sort of didn't tell doesn't really their, do anything doesn't push the story forward yeah. mm. um whereas now it really reflects on them and allows us to do yes. a huge amount more work yeah. in terms of the staging in terms of the st- moving that story forward it's essentially them falling in love with each other whereas in the 2019 production they weren't falling in love during that song no, they, benjamin was was sat there <laughs> just sat there that's what happens when you write a show in eight months yeah sometimes <laughs> the lead character is just sat there. just sat there doing nothing for six minutes <laughs> ladies and gentlemen ladies and gentlemen Whene'er she looked at me Oh, Oh, there was a fair maiden As I do recall The barmaid was a local girl Who had been raised in the very same house Where Benjamin was born Alone Eliki, the midwife's daughter Oh, there was a fair maiden, as I do recall, in a salt-pickled pub by the old harbour wall. From the moment I saw her, I knew I would fall if ere she looked at me. Benjamin Button requested just beer on precisely 204 occasions. Once a week, every Friday night, for almost four years. Oh, I turn up to see her once every week. She'd a gleam in her eye and a rose in her cheek. But she tied up my tongue so that I could not speak whene'er she looked at me. So pour me another, I'll drink till it's done. And drink through the night till the dawning of sun. So pour me another, for I'll never be free from the way she looked at me. unable to say anything else to Alowin. And so she didn't call him by his name when he came in each Friday evening, for she didn't know it. She simply called him Just Beer! The usual! Oh, when there she addressed me, my face, it went red. My mouth became cotton, my feet turned to lead. My words and my wishes stayed stuck in my head. When there she looked at me. 
over the course of those 204 occasions, Benjamin managed to add the words please and thank you at the appropriate moment. Please. Thank you. <laughs> so pour me another, I'll drink to this tongue And drink through the night till the dawning of sun So pour me another, or I'll never be free From the way she looked at me Since the day she looked at me Come on, boys! So we've gotten to 2019. We've had our first production at Southwark. Then what? What happens next? We've got a lot of time to cover. Uh, the bidding war begins, basically. The, the thing you always want when you're making a little fringe show that you think, we'll make this little fringe show and then like the West End will be calling and there'll be loads of producers 
fighting over the show and it never happens and the phone doesn't ring and you go back to your normal life. Uh, but it did actually happen. And there was a lot of interest from all over the world, from across the West End, which is quite, it was exciting. It was quite, it was a very new experience for me, um, quite overwhelming. And um, yeah. And so then um, ATG came on board and immediately started sort of helping us, you know, financing our time to be able to go and sit and do all the rewrites that we knew we needed to do. Mm -hmm. um, we spent the rest of 2019 rewriting the show. Yep. Start of 2020, we did a big West End workshop, um, which had a lot of very exciting people in the room, a lot of big key decision makers. Very exciting. And it, it was pretty clear that within an, the next 12 months, we would be in the West End and life would be good. And then the pandemic came. And there was a pandemic. And <laughs> How very dare. Yeah. And so then yeah. there was a long pause where I took up carpentry as a hobby. And so did I. Yeah. And gardening. And gardening. Yeah. And we didn't do any work on the show. And I had a baby. You had a baby. Congrats. Yeah. I moved to Maidstone. Yeah. Um, I became deeply, deeply obsessed with carpentry to an unhealthy point yeah. and spent literally all my time in a workshop. In a workshop. Yeah. So um, you're building the set for the next iteration I is what I'm hearing. Set. I built the set for the first <laughs> oh one. Oh my goodness. I wasn't allowed and to build And I was it. joking. I was not allowed to build the set this time. He was not allowed. Fair enough. I did get to build some of the scenery and whenever something broke on the set, I was allowed to repair it. But if <laughs> you're walking around rehearsals wearing his tool belt with his drill. <laughs> with my flip flops still. Like, Although, is there something yeah. I can do? So give me something to yeah, fix. I was give thrilled me when something broke. <laughs> um, yeah. And so then there was a long pause. And then 2021, we started up again, which in a way was great because it should take a while to write something because you need to stop thinking of it as yours, like in a way, or like, well, that's my work, or that's that bit that I wrote. I want to keep that bit because you don't end up with that. When you've had that time to step away from it, you can just go like, okay, there's something clearly wrong there. Let's fix it and make it better. Um, and it's it, it's hard to do that when you're sort of like so close to it and there's still like your personal feelings attached mm. to the... Yeah, when you've just had it in front of an audience who loved it and you're yeah. feeling like, we're great. This show's great. We don't yeah. need to change anything. And actually yeah. we needed to change a lot. A lot. Um, and again, we needed to change, like after we, we did our rewrites. We, we changed like, more. We in, changed way more this time. Yeah. We, we have, in fact, yeah. almost in a way, every time we, whether it's a workshop and then we, every time we go back into the rewriting process, the changes we make are more substantial than yeah. the, the time before. We're getting in a way more brutal with it. Yeah. Um, and it does seem to be, it does seem to be getting better. It does seem to be. <laughs> Give it another 10 years, it'll be perfect. Um, yeah, and so then we did a load of rewrites uh, over 2021, 20, 22. We did a very small workshop for two days um, where we just had two actors come in to play Benjamin and Alowin, and we just spent a day and a half teaching them their songs and their scenes and then Darren and I read the rest of it and then we did a reading of it which was a terrible mistake for for the two it was so stressful so uh, we're like we should have got some more actors in to do turns this turns out I can't play my music <laughs> and I can't say the things that I wrote uh and then again from that we're able to see a load more and went back into the rewrites for it and that takes us pretty much to September last year which was the point at which we had our 
next draft ready to go basically yeah so when you're rewriting how do you know that something's wrong is it an ick gut gut feeling pretty much yeah feeling like when we did that read through for that for that sort of two-day read through yeah and that's where it was actually quite useful that we were reading so much of it i remember reading bits of it narrate lines of narration scenes and just thinking what's this about what what i don't like this bit or singing a bit of a song and going like what's the point of that Mm. what's what is that doing it is you know it's definitely there's this this gut feeling of like i'm bored now Mm -hmm. i don't and if you you as the writer are bored when you're going through your show then there's no way in hell that an audience isn't going to be bored we're entertainers and the last thing you want an audience to be is is bored i mean the counter of that is often that we are bored by things that the audience isn't bored by yes, because yes. we've seen it so many times. Yes. And you've got to know the difference between But actually that. that's where an audience might, if we're bored by something, it, it's probably the audience's least favourite moment. And actually if we're bored by it, it's their least favourite moment. Let's make it so we like it. Yeah. Then probably they'll like it too. Yeah. And there, you know, there are moments in the show where, you know, quite, quite a few moments when I was sitting there watching it in, you know, towards the end of the run in 2023 we're going like, I am not bored of that. I've seen it a hundred times and I'm still not bored of it. And that's a good sign. And if you are bored of it, then like even after like 15 times of watching it, if you're bored of it, there's something not. There were moments of the show I was bored of by preview. Right, right, exactly. Which was but, a really, really yeah. big sign. And yeah. how does that affect your working relationship? Because obviously this is the first show you've worked on together, but obviously it's gone and through many. Last. And the last. <laughs> I've been trying to done. convince him to write another musical. He's not having it. <laughs> I'm retiring after this. I'll believe it when his, I see it. Going, going back to my carpentry <laughs> workshop. <laughs> when, you, when you come across things, do you always agree that it's not right? Do you butt heads a lot? We butt heads. All the time. All the time. Um, normally when I'm right and he's wrong, that's when we have the biggest arguments. That's incorrect. Uh, Which is 90% of the time. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you know, we have differences of opinion, we have different tastes, um, and often we'll be able to identify that something isn't working, but where we then would butt heads normally is on the the solution solution to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And usually, like, the, there's there's the butting of heads where we both got very strong opinions about how it how it should be fixed, but ultimately the best solutions have always come of like of a meeting somewhere in the middle of the two. Often, Isn't it, would would you say that's that's right? I mean, I'm happy for you to see it that way. I think yeah. it's normally most successful when it's a meeting <laughs> of you know you coming to to my no. I think I think often yeah that. Because compromise is a really dangerous thing, I think, actually. You're yeah. going, well, you think that and I think that, so let's go down the middle. Yeah. You end up watering something down. Yeah. I think normally what it, the moments where we have the um, those sort of biggest moments of sort of butting heads, conflict, arguments, are normally when we are, our understanding is not aligned. Oh, and actually, so not, it's, yeah. it's not that we have diff- a different opinion, it's that our understandings are different. Yeah. And then... Often it's that one of us will explain to the other one why they see it that way. And so it's then coming to sort of a joint understanding of what the problem is and therefore what the solution is. Yeah, because you're two, you know, you're two different brains. You see the entire thing in your mind and each of you have a slightly different picture. And as much as possible, it's about aligning those pictures so that they 
So we're seeing the same thing. Um, and yes, yeah, that's not necessarily easy, but it's certainly when you when you were mentioning before about how do you know when something's not right? It's when we don't agree about something. If mm. we don't agree on something, it's not right. Mm. And that's it. You know, and we and we have to work until we agree on it. And then and then it'll be right. So the second song we have is called The Moon and the Sea. Mm. And it's my understanding this has gone through many rewrites. Yeah. Yes. Talk yes. to us about that. Yes. I hate it. <laughs> no. It's a beautiful song. I love the song. Um we have I think we're really close with it now. Yeah. It's a song that it's a, it's the sort of conditional love song. Um it's hugely important in terms of we rewrote the lyrics we talked about earlier to yeah. when Ashley looked at me, which meant that actually by the time you got to Moon in the Sea in this latest version, and this was something that came from the cast of we've done so much of the journey of what was previously in Moon in the Sea is now happening in When Ashley Looked at Me because we know how they feel about each other because we've seen it so clearly. And therefore the lyrics were essentially questioning what if they're in love, whereas actually in Moon Sea, they now need, they're now in the latest version, which we don't have a demo of or a recording of. In the latest version, they're saying, no matter if they're in love, what can they do about yeah. it? Which is a very different question. question. And actually, it means that by the end of Moon and the Sea, they, as a, as a sort of a central couple, are in their journey are much, much further along yes. than they were in the 2019 production, which is super helpful, I think, in terms of an audience buying into that love story. Yeah. They're completely committed to it by that point whereas in 2019 it was it was essentially they they've just met and sort of maybe do they like each other yeah and then what came after it was quite hard yeah. to justify the two so the two songs like function in quite different ways when Nancy looked at me crosses a great period of time it's five years almost mm. whereas um the moon and the sea happens in real time of an evening and to fall in love in four and a half minutes like in a meaningful way is very, very, it's not possible, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's what happens to me. Normally. It's what happens to Jethro. And yeah. um, we're not telling Jethro's story. Um, <laughs> so, for, so for like, by the time we get to the, the period where they are now figuring out what we're going to do, the question arising of what are we going to do about this? This is something you can consider in four and a half minutes. And, and you can sort of at the end of it have made some sort of decision or some sort of idea. But it's more it's the 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 impact of that decision is informed greatly by the fact that they've had five years of like slowly growing closer to each other. Because otherwise, you're just going like we're in love. What does that mean? Mm. What's that like? That's nothing. You had five years of growth, and and w w will she? Won't she? Won't they? Um, and then this question: What do we do about it? So set the scene physically for us as we listen to the song, because one of the things about the about seeing it in the production is this is such a beautiful moment visually, as well as uh, with sound and with text and all of those things. So just tell us, where are they when they sing this song? So they're outside the village pub um, by the harbour. Um, it's a clear moonlit night. Moon is reflecting on the sea. Um, and yeah, it's a calm, quiet spring night. Um, on the harbour side, um, yeah, and they're they're essentially sort of on the pier, or sort of harbour wall sort of thing. Mm. And there are stars as well, and it's very pretty and twinkly stars. Don't you need to be getting back inside? I'm in no rush. It's a nice evening. I love it on a clear night when you can see the face of the man in the moon. 
Love the way his light touches the sea. <laughs> now there is a thought. I wonder what if the moon were to sing to the sea. What would his song be? Perhaps he'd sing, Oh, how you shimmer and shine far below. pretty much 70. But men in their 50s, they're not rushing forward, they're not looking back, they're just content. What are you, 55, 56? Something like that. Well, you know what I reckon? I reckon 56 is the perfect age. So? What? Tell me a thought. Or 
right? I'd like to visit the moon. I'm serious. So am I. I would like to. Impossible. Not yet it isn't, but I read someone invented a liquid-fueled rocket just a few years back, so now it's only a matter of time. You think we'll live to see a man on the moon? I think... I think that anything's possible. Now that, Mr. Just Benjamin, is what I'd call a thaw. I probably should be getting back inside. Of course. Good night, Jess Benjamin. I wonder what if the moon were in love with the sea. So for those of you that have seen the show... Um, there's also a, a, a lovely little visual Easter egg as well, which we were just talking about listening to the song. We won't spoil that for you here on the podcast. But what it has got us really excited about is what's next for Benjamin Button? Tell me, because I have not seen it yet and I need to buy my ticket. <laughs> <laughs> so we are, since about three, four weeks now, we're back in the writing room. Mm-hmm. Um, and making some big, big changes to some sections of the show that that essentially all the newer sections of the show that were brand new in twenty in the twenty three production had not been tested. Essentially, we always sort of talk about it: the writing process is fil- process of filtration of you, each time, each pass we go through, just filtering more and more of that of it until it's really got down to exactly what it needs to be. And a lot of the material in twenty three had not gone through much filtration by that point and so now that particularly now also we were writing it in a writing room without an audience without being able to test it and so now having seen it in front of an audience as often as we've seen it in front of an audience it was really clear what's working what's not so now we're able to to really brutally reflect on that so we're working on that and each month we're going back into a workshop um, environment not a carpentry workshop unfortunately but uh, (laughs) musical theatre workshop. Um, we did one last week and we've got another couple coming up where essentially we're doing a couple of weeks of rewrites, getting in a room and testing it out with um, actors and actor musos and then going doing a bit more rewriting. Um, and that is keeping us busy until Christmas this year. Hmm. And the show, obviously, you said earlier, it started in a barn in Cornwall. Um, and now we're really talking about a much bigger scale. Um, but actually, the style of the show is very intimate. How are you safeguarding that? It's, I mean, it's something that we are really fiercely protective over is essentially the heart and the essence of it. And there was a, a lot of people had a lot of fear in terms of the fans of this, the 2019 production when we announced we're doing a new production. There's some big people involved. It's a cast of 12. Um, a lot of audiences who loved the show were, were, were nervous about was it going to lose its heart? It's about protecting the honesty of the storytelling and it's as simple as that if the show relies on storytelling there's no tricks or gimmicks to it Mm. it's just really honest storytelling what you see is what you get and as long as we hold on to that and hold on to the act musicianship and hold on to the to the fact that it's just it wears its heart on its sleeve and it's never trying to be anything other than exactly what it is is it at Mm. its core um, you know, we've scaled it from 136 seats to 252 seats. We've gone from a cast of five up to a cast of 12. Um, and, you know, the budget went from just under 70,000 to just under 400,000. And yet 
it still feels like yeah. the same essence and the same heart and the same message. Yeah. I think it's partly the fact that everyone involved in it, in the sort of creative, the producers, uh, were aware that that's a big part of it, that it's intimacy, that its heart is so important. And so it's almost like growing the heart one size at a time. Like you can't just go like, you know, the Grinch whose, whose heart grew four sizes in, in one moment. You've got to do it incrementally and, and gradually. And I have, I have no doubt that, you know, it could, um, it can reach larger audiences and, and play larger houses one day, but it's got to get there gradually because otherwise we'll lose control of it. So Benjamin Button obviously is, is in a really fortunate place. You've had these productions, you have a producer on board, you've been, you've been slowly growing this as we've all discussed. I would hope there's a lot of, um, you know, writers that are potentially in earlier stages in trying to get their work out. If you could distill this experience down to one piece of advice that you give to someone else. Care only about the story, about nothing else, tell a good story and do not compromise on any aspect of telling that story unless yeah not even unless just ne- just don't compromise just te- just tell the story be stubborn tell the story that you need to tell uh and i would say get your show on by any means necessary um because that's when you learn the most about it and if no one sees it no one knows it's there and what's the point of that Making a Musical is produced and hosted by Alex Jackson and Kiki Stevenson for The Other Palace. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you're listening to help us share new British musical theatre with audiences all around the world. You can submit your new musical to be featured on the podcast at theotherpalace.co.uk. That's it from us. Join us next time for more Making Making a Musical, musical, the the future future of of British British musical musical theatre.